Making a no-budget film? It's like going to war. But you're not General MacArthur. Storming the beaches with the force of a hundred thousand soldiers. Instead, you're... You're more like a squad of Viet Cong guerrillas behind enemy lines. Trying to complete an impossible mission using guile and your wits. The odds stacked against you. It's risky, difficult, and dangerous. I can swear to it. I've been there. Uh, we all have our beverages, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, today on our episode, we have a special guest returning. This time with uh, that you get to meet him, Matt. Uh, the director... What? Of the recently finished Shark Island dun, dun, and uh, dun, dun, and the dun, movie dun. from last summer, The Incantation, yes. Mr. Jude S. Waco. Hi, guys. Hey, what's up, Jude? Hey, Matt. Hey, nice to meet you. Yeah, my pleasure. It's finally cool to be in a room with both of you homies. <laughs> yeah, so I... I uh, <laughs> I, I, I shipped Jude over uh, freight from <laughs> yeah, Thailand exactly. to to help yeah. work on um, to help work on this this show that we're doing that we start shooting on Monday actually. Cool. For some reason, the Cambodian sex trappers didn't want me though. Right, <laughs> right. It was in the same. I was able to get it for like. They were like, "Now let this guy go." No, nah, I got him for 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 top dollar. <laughs> I just had to pay for postage. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good deal. But um, but we want we wanted to bring you on because uh, last time you were on, uh, Matt wasn't able to be on, and yeah, sad we, face. We we talked a little bit about like leaning on your experience, as, especially as a producer, mm-hmm. uh, producer for, for people on the yes, that's right, you did just show the PGA. <laughs> but for those people who were interested in getting into the uh, film industry, yeah, and you know, kind of leaning on your experience and giving some help, I, I would think some helpful hints to anyone who's interested in it. Yeah. But um, for this episode, we were thinking. Let's bring you on because you, you just finished shooting a film, just finished directing your second feature film now. Yeah. And just tell us a little bit about that experience. Tell us what it was like to shoot. Or, well, what is Shark Island? Like, Shark Island. Well, it was a uh, it was a grand adventure. We ended up shooting in uh, Thailand, which is where I spend a lot of my time because I have a wife and kids there. Um, the story is about basically a bunch of models are going on a shoot, and there's this uh, ten million dollar necklace. Mm. Uh, and they ended up shooting on a shark-infested island that you find out about as the movie goes on. Right, why? Because right. that doesn't really make sense. But uh, there's a reason why. Uh, so it's basically hot women and beautiful locations and sharks, and everybody dies. Plot spoiler. Yeah, it's a shark. Spoilers, spoiler alert for anyone who wants to watch this. <laughs> Not everybody dies. But yeah, it's it's cool. It was fun. It was, uh, it was extremely challenging. Um as I mentioned before, you know, I think everything I've done in my career, you know, over 25 years at this point has led to, the, cul- the culmination has led to this, and I'm glad to have all that experience because I needed all of it. I mean, it's a whole whole different uh, deal when you're, when you're directing something. Uh, it's a nice. particular set of skills that you just hone like any other craft, so I was, I was happy to do it. So, so what got you sort of... Um... How did you come across a script? Did you write it? Did you did uh, someone bring you a script? Yeah, so I have a friend, and uh, I've known him for a long time, about 20 years, and he mentioned that uh, a guy that I'd actually known prior that I didn't realize, but we had exchanged some emails like five years ago, but anyways, they had this script already, so I did a polish on it, several polishes, um, 
it was a it was a great story in the beginning, but it was a little too convoluted. So I just made it much simpler, both in story and logistics. Um, and I think better, and even the writer agrees that it was better. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they hired me to direct it. And I live in Thailand, and it, it takes place in an exotic location. So it kind of worked out well. And then uh, I basically was given the reins at that point and started casting out of Thailand, flew in a few of my friends from America and uh, UK and other places. But uh, it, was, it was awesome. It was great. So as I understood, listen to the last episode, it sounds like there's not a lot of jobs in film that you haven't done. Um, <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> and so when you're now that you're in the director's seat, is um, yeah. you finding all that experience uh, is really helping? Yeah, I mean, what I tell people, especially those in new in the industry, is you know, I said this on my last podcast with you guys, just to, to study every facet of film, especially if you want to be a director or a producer. Because it helps you, every little piece of knowledge helps you be a better director or producer. Um, so it definitely, it definitely helped and led up to this um, in many ways. Just because, like, you're, I, I, my thing is, I always say, directing to me, and I'm sure some people would say this too. It's like I always say, it's like doing a Rubik's cube, but when you're underwater, because there's so many things going on in your mind. There's logistics. There's aesthetic. There's uh, you know, acting, there's shot lists, there's the edit is constantly in your head. So um, I, I honestly feel that everything for me being an extra to an actor, to a grip guy, to a producer, to a first AD, to a PA, to any, to, to the guy picking up the trash. And, and back again. <laughs> back again. You know, like every, anytime you're on a set, you learn, you, you watch pros, you learn from other people, you learn from yourself, your own experience. And I think all of that went into being a director and uh, especially especially acting and editing and tech, technical wise with camera, I think all that stuff it helps extremely in being a better director for sure. So, so with, when like this being your second time directing, what yeah. was um, what was the biggest change from your first? Uh, directing Tent, which was the Incantation, yeah, which was a horror film, Dean Kane, um, in the more supernatural vein, yeah, to this, which is more of a essentially a creature feature, right? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, I would say, you know, the good news is, like, you know, when I did my first film, it's your, it's your, let's say, freshman feature, right? So you're kind of worried about. Okay, people are going to look at this and they're going to judge me on it, and, and I may or may not get future work based on this. It's going to be my trademark moving forward. It's always going to be your first film that people go back to, whether good or bad, right? So that that pressure, so to speak, was off. So um, this one was like, the challenges in this one that were more challenging is it was an ensemble piece. So mm -hmm. I had I had eight actors in almost every scene because it's right. I we kept calling them the Scooby Doo gang because it's basically <laughs> an extended Scooby Doo mystery, right? Where where there's this necklace and people start dying and everyone's accusing, you know, sort of like Agatha Christie's uh, Murder on the Orient Express meets Jaws type situation, right? So, cool. um, so yeah, so so many actors, which uh, in hindsight on an independent film. You know, I probably wouldn't do again if given the choice, just because it's so much going on in every scene, every day, and each of these people have their own acting talents, they have their own personalities, they have their own attention spans, and you put eight people in a room trying to film, and it becomes extremely difficult and distracting, but fun. We had a great time, but 
just very challenging. So that that was a that was a new experience as a director of so many people because prior I had only had like two or three people in a scene. Right, right. So that was crazy different. And then just the challenges in this one of you know you guys know I've shot every possible location, every possible scenario. But when you're d the director and you're sort of in charge of of everything creatively. It's another ball of wax, and in this one, we were in an ocean every day. Every day, we're in the water. Right. So you got the elements, you got the sun, you got sharp rocks in the water, you got people wet, you know, like 12 hours of the day, they're submerged in water, and you got everything that comes along with that. So that part was, uh, was challenging, but I would say I felt way more comfortable. Some things I learned in my first film is to trust your gut and your instinct you know because like when you're when you're when it's your first or second film you might be second guessing yourself or like sometimes you get an overambitious dp or someone that to me like i i for me particularly i know the edit in my head from beginning to end exactly every shot i want i know what i need and what i what's fluff and what i don't need right so then sometimes a dp doesn't know that especially you know like it's on indie. It's really hard to storyboard a hundred pages when you don't have time to do that and that kind of thing. So DP doesn't always know. So sometimes they'll be like, "Well, why do you want that shot?" So I've learned to sort of put on my producer hat and say, "Dude, I don't have time to explain to you why I need these three shots right now. Just get them because you've already been talking about it for five minutes, and we could have already shot this." Right. At least one of those shots could have been in the camera. <laughs> exactly. So that that happened a lot on my first film. The second film, I basically didn't have it. I, I wasn't having any of that. I would basically just shut them down right away and be like, "Hey, I, I got to get this shot. We're not. We're not. It's not a discussion we need to have right now." You know. So, and and not in a dickish way. Just in a like, you know, if if you don't take control of the situation, you know how it is. People will just. And then, my experience has also been that, especially with young directors or first-time directors, once people get that sense, they feel like they can put their idea in the hat, right? So then it's like you got actors questioning you and then you got other crew questioning you and it causes create chaos, right? So you right. so you have to take a uh, authoritative stance on the set. Again, not to be dickish, but just you. there has to be a, a singular vision or at least a very focused vision, even if there's several people putting in to, to the kitty or whatever, you know? What what is the way to respond to someone that's trying to tell you, oh, we don't need this shot, or you know, because uh, you keep saying not in a dickish way. Uh, yeah. What do you? What, how would you take care of something like that? Well, basically, what I would do is I would always hear if the DP said it, I would always hear him out because chances are that guy's technically proficient and has a good reason why he may or may not think I need the shot. So I let him. I give him thirty seconds to tell me, you know, are you going to really use this in the edit, or is this, that, or the other? And then I would say, yes, let's get the shot, right? And then, and then it would come down a couple of times, not so bad on my second film uh, on Shark Island, but a couple of times the DP would be like, um, he would say, uh, you know, he'd start talking about, I, I just don't get it. I don't see where you're going to use this, whatever. And then he, there was like maybe two or three times where he said, why do you need this shot? And I said, because I'm the director and I asked you to do it. And yeah. he said, fair, fair enough, let's do it. You know, like, <laughs> so, so sometimes it comes to that. But my problem is that I'm, I'm 
for the most part, a nice guy, and I engage with people. So Unless you don't say copy that over the microphone. <laughs> unless you say don't copy that. So, so I get distracted, especially when my mind's doing eight different things, and then people ask me questions, and I feel the need to answer them back. And then I get in a discussion. Yep. So, so on this one, I found myself going, what the fuck? We're not having a discussion <laughs> right now. Get the shot. You know, like yep. I averaged about nine, ten pages a day on this movie. You know, in the elements, in in the water, eight cast, like it was, it was challenge. Well, and I would imagine that that sticking to a vision when there's such a lack of resources and structure, yeah, is very difficult. There was a I was watching a Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, top ten things for success, and and I remember yeah. they kind of boiled it down. There's three that really stuck out, and in one of the interview clips that he said, he's like, um, and I think that this has actually caused some indie directors to go down the wrong path or maybe has set a tone that you don't need to know what you're doing but right. but, but essentially what he's saying is you don't need to know all the technical stuff you don't need to know how to what the the, the, the lenses sizes are yeah you don't necessarily need to know all the technical jargon yeah what you need to have is a vision yeah and you need to be able to communicate that vision yeah and you need to be able to hire the people who can execute yeah. your vision Agreed. and if you can do those three things yeah. then you put yourself in a position where all the knowledge that you don't know yeah. is covered by people who are there to support you. Yeah, exactly. And and I would say, you know, two of those things you could do on your own volition. You could be prepared, have a shot list, you know, but you can't always hire the crew you want. Sometimes right, you're stuck, right. especially on an indie with what you get kind of thing. But you could definitely train them up and, and let them know, you know, in the, in the given situation. But yeah. What is the crew like? Um on uh, indie films, do you find that you're, you're dealing with a lot of green, what we call here in Texas, greenhorns that are just, kinda, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of don't know what they're doing. You have to hold them by the hand. A lot of that. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. I mean, I mean, most of the time you are because of budget constraints, but you try to find the people that uh, have, have the right attitude is a big thing and are hungry. You know, the people who are maybe not at that level experience wise or technically, but they want to get there and they're willing to, you know, do whatever they can to, to do it. And I find that one of those people, a person that has the the go get them attitude of three people, but the experience of half a, a person is better than having an experienced guy just gonna be like, oh, why do I gotta do that? That's not my job, all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot there's a lot that goes into running a set and despite the budget level, one of the key factors always ends up being do the people who are there want to be there? Yeah. And are they bringing unnecessary drama to the set yeah, exactly. or, or complaining or negativity or whatever? Because the days are long, the labor is physical and hard in most instances. And if you add that element of negativity on top of all the other logistical issues you have, oh, yeah. you're, you're, you're in for a long, long day or a long shoot. You know. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you, you hear that phrase a million times that one sour apple spoils a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. And it's so true because once one person starts complaining, they're like, it just creates this negative attitude. And um, it, on, both, on both films that I've directed, we had that one person who's tried to go down that road, but right. but I kind of had the foresight to see, okay, I see where this is going. We're going to nip it in the bud right now. And I would basically address it before it got into this, all this like naysaying and backstabbing and all that kind of stuff that can happen sometimes. Um, so luckily in both instances, uh, that was curtailed, but there's all, you know, there's always that one person that just is 
does nothing but complain. It's so funny because it's always those people too, putting the producer hat on again. It's those people that are always like, why does no one call me for jobs? I don't get it. Like everyone else is working, you know, because yeah. because they don't realize it, and and they sell themselves so good. Like in the you in, know in the room yeah. in the room, they're like, oh yeah, I'll do whatever. Like this is great. I can't wait to do this. Yeah, it sounds like a great project. And then day one of the set, they're like, ah. Well, it's 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 you know, so much of, of any creative endeavor is relationships, right? There's one. Yeah. There's a reason why there are some people that you want to work with all the time yeah. for years and years and years. Yeah. And then there are people whom you're just like, uh, okay, I, I, that's, I'll never go down that path again. That was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's true. And, and just like about, like you're saying any creative thing, it's uh, people management skills is just like so much more important than you would think. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a good point too. Cause I would say, I would say as a director, people management skills is the number one skill you have to have. Like I think even, even the aesthetic and the story and all that is secondary to people skills. Cause if you can't manage actors and crew, you're well, right. Because, because if you, if you have a, even a decent crew on board, they'll help aid in the aesthetic yeah. and, and your actors will help flesh out your story. Yeah. But you got to get them to that point and then yeah. you can't do that. Then yeah. the dead weight. Yeah. And I find also, my experience has been like, I'm, I'm super passionate, especially when I'm directing because it's what I want to end up doing. It's why I paid all these years of dues is to get to this position. So like, I'm super passionate when I'm directing and I think that shows and, it, and the, the result of that is at the end of the shoot, everyone's trying to help me. Even people who at the beginning may have complained or may have like, I barely got them because of the rate or whatever. At right. the end, they're all like, like after after both shoots I did, everyone was like, um, you know, when are we shooting again? I can't wait till the next one. But oh, it's like a family. Oh, I miss you guys. All that kind of stuff. And and I feel like that's again like a people management slash leadership quality where if you can put yourself out there and and basically wear your heart on your sleeve. Like I just tell people straight, I'm like, dude, I don't have any money. I don't have any time. You guys are helping me. I am eternally grateful. This will be a lifelong bond if you help me out on this, and I'll owe you big. And if you put up the bat signal and call me, it's my turn to fucking slop right, through the water right, yeah. with you know, like that's the way it works in my world. So um, I I feel like uh, you know I've been hashtag blessed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like and like um, case in point, this this show that we're about to do together is our 17th show to <laughs> yeah. work on yeah. in the last 10 years. Yeah, that's nice. Not even, because I, I met you about a year and a half after I, I started dabbling in films. So yeah. Yeah. really, it's only been like nine and a half, eight years yeah, that yeah. we've known each other yeah. and started working with each other, alternating positions. Yeah, <laughs> over time, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's been great. But, but again, it's like once you find... That but we, we always use this this term like being in the trenches like yeah once you find that that buddy that you can be in the trench with Matt and I same thing I mean when I first started getting into film I think the very first thing I ever directed Matt not Matt was my my lead actor in nice you know it was a little yeah. three minute three minute short or so that we did yeah uh you know but we stayed up all night and it was a one of those like twenty four hour uh, yeah, maybe, yeah maybe it was forty eight hour like film fest yeah, you know? yeah yeah so I remember we went over to the the house that Matt was staying at the time. And like, I don't think we got a prompt to the evening. It was like they gave you like a line. What was it? Like a prompt, a line, and like something else. Uh, in a format, I guess. Uh, and ours was, I think ours was first person shooter. 
Yeah, I was first person shooter, oh, so yeah. I took some definite liberties with that. Yeah. So basically, basically what we did is we sat around and we we're like, all right, what do we have available to us? We had no money. It was like me and Matt and a few other friends, and and one of them had like a kind of like a farm style house, mm-hmm. and and they said they had a barn, which was really just like a little garage, yeah. like a little like storage, a, like shed. a shed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we we were thinking well, of like this really cool farmhouse for a horror movie, and it was like one of those sheds in the Home Depot parking lot, you know, that. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's like one of those all small. We're just like, yeah, all right, that's not what you described. <laughs> so, so in my mind, I was like, I was really into zombie movies at the time. I was like, I want to do a zombie movie, but a twist. So I want you to think it's a zombie film. I want you to, I want you to come into the scene and you think it's two people like, you know, like, like Don, uh, Night of the Living Dead, where they're trying to like survive the night of the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. And then you realize that they're actually psychos and they're just like slicing and dicing some people <laughs> in, that are just having a fucking kegger out in like the you know yeah yeah because Central Texas because you can hear them uh, when when we're inside the barn you know kind of giving ourselves the pep talk like we're gonna go out there we're gonna do this and, and you can hear the you know the the mindless groans from outside you know of that sound right, like right. zombies but it's actually just like drunk <laughs> frat boys you know <laughs> yeah. stumbling around and <laughs> that's awesome yeah our, our friend uh jackie who's who is, is an actress in austin uh shout out to jackie jackie uh, and matt were my my two like serial killery type <laughs> people and that's awesome at the time matt had a super long hair and yeah. so uh, I think I gave him like a pitchfork, and I think maybe she oh, had a yeah. machete, and you know, I was like the first death, and it, it was a, it was a, it was a great nice. time. But it was, it's like that was probably ten years ago, nine years ago. But it's the same essential process in a lot of ways. It's like you gather, you yeah. gather those people you like making art with. Yeah. You figure out what you have available to yourself. Yeah. And then everyone kind of adds to it, and then for every place that's a mistake or doesn't quite work and you show up thinking it's a barn and it's a little shed and, and <laughs> you know everyone just sort of puts your thinking hat on and um i think the the one of the people who was working with us she was like really into like electronic music yeah and so it created a whole different vibe than, right than probably if just left by myself that i would have imagined for this yeah, yeah. which then affected the camera work and everything else on the line yeah, yeah. so um that's that's sort of the joy of it, I think, and it sounds like the process hasn't really changed no. that much further down the line. Yeah, it doesn't. I have a uh, barn slash shed situation that happened to me once. I was in uh, I was in shooting in Jordan for this big Indian movie, and we were looking for caves. We had this big scene that we're basically reenacting um, Osama bin Laden, right? So he's in a cave. It's supposed to fit like sixty. Of his guys and horses and ammunition, right? <laughs> so, so we're scouting all of Jordan. They're like, "Oh yeah, we got caves, we got caves, we got caves, yeah, yeah." So we go down to Amman, which is like the south part where Petra is and all that, or Petra, not sorry, Petra, where like Wadi Rum and all that is. And so we got, we're like, got the director and everybody, and I was producing it and first eating it. And we're all like, you got the whole gang there. We flew in from India, and they take us this little fucking thing that not even a person could stand up in. Like, we all got out of the cars, and we walked up and looked in there. And I was like, oh, shit, I am going to get hell for this. And uh, it wasn't fun. <laughs> we ended up building the uh, caves on set in, in, uh, in India. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. Fun stuff. Um, so like w- you mentioned previously, like murder on the Orient express yeah. and, and obviously jaws, right? That's the first thing yeah. I think so. But what, 
to tackle a film like this, what were, you know, beyond those two things, like what were some of the influences yeah. that you implemented in the making of this? Yeah, well, um, for me, this particular script, right, like I wanted there to be suspense because I knew as an indie, like potentially the acting may not be great because some people are models and some people are actors and you don't have a budget to pay like a bunch of SAG people to fly to Thailand. So chances are maybe the acting is not going to be great. I was pleasantly surprised, so that's good, but I wasn't counting on that, right? So knowing that, I was like, I got to build suspense and I don't have money to have a giant, big animatronic shark like, you know. <laughs> like some like films Steven's have. Field. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So I was like, what do I do? So for me, um, I wanted to keep the suspense going throughout the film. So it was cool because basically you got this – $10 million necklace, right? And so no one can be trusted because all the actors, the, I mean, sorry, in the script, all the models, the photographer, the security guy that comes with the necklace and all that, they all know going in that's a $10 million necklace, right? Right, That's right. the preface to the story. So everyone knows there's something here worth a lot of money. So they, it basically it's a story about human nature and greed coming out, right? So the, the analogy there is, or the metaphor is, who are the sharks, right? Right. Or is it the people or is it the actual literal sharks, right? So that's the whole – I wanted to keep that throughout the film. So to me, I had – because the script on paper, although it had certain things built into it, it didn't necessarily have that intrigue in there. And I wanted to have like, pun intended, a ton of red herrings, <laughs> <laughs> right, for the sharks. Because, because – so basically what I would do is – Every day I might be like, oh, you know what would be cool if this character, like one character I would have, uh, maybe she would, it would imply that she wanted to go have sex with the photographer, right? Not showing it. Just right. Like right. maybe she like caresses his arm, says, hey, beat me later. She's trying to seduce him. Trying to seduce him. Or maybe two of the models are talking in a corner and they're like, yeah, did you fucking see that, that guy? I don't trust that guy or whatever, right? So I kept building these little nuggets in there. So as you're watching the movie, hopefully, I haven't edited it yet, but hopefully – you're being distracted by like who's really doing what here and who's on whose team and who's on what side, right? you know, which is the payoff in the climax. Um, so there's that. The other thing on this particular movie I learned, so I watched a lot of shark movies. I watched 47 meters down. I watched jaws. I watched uh, the Meg uh, and a bunch of others. Um, and basically what I learned, especially from the low budget aspect is, you know, anytime in those movies, that you don't see the shark, it's way more, tension is way higher. Right, that's a staple way of a higher. great horror film. Yeah. Exactly. So all I basically had was a fin and blood, right? <laughs> so I had to be super creative with camera angles and suspense. So what I did was, basically the hardest part was coming up with, you know, again, I had eight characters and I'm telling you the majority of them die, right? Whether it be shark or otherwise. <laughs> so I had to, you know, I'm constantly in the water with a shark fin, which is a whole thing in and of itself of buoyancy and turning the wrong angle and, you know, floating sideways. And right, right. It's attached to a person and there's not enough weight. There's too much weight. The water's too deep. The water's too shallow. All that stuff going on, right? So, but on top of that, build the suspense. When do we see the shark? When do we don't see the shark? How far away is it? How close is it? How believable is it? All that kind of stuff, right? So that was like very, to me, the biggest challenge, um, but also the biggest reward that I feel you know, I had to be super extra creative with that stuff and I had to sell it because I, I don't want it to be just another schlocky, 
you know, asylum movie about sharks. Like we've seen that a million times. Right. Yeah. I wanted it to be at least believable that, you know, that could be a, a real shark and there's a real danger and there's definitely at least a threat here. And on top of that, people are dying, not necessarily of sharks as well, because everyone's trying to get this necklace. Right. So I think, I think I had to work those in the story continuously and it made it awesome. It made it more interesting. I feel. Did you, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. This is not the same kind of movie, but, um, have you ever seen Blackbird? I don't it's, think so. It's, a, it's an unofficial sequel to The Maltese Falcon. Oh. But it's a comedy. Oh, really? With uh, Sam... Uh, God, he was, the, he was the dad from Look Who's Talking... Look Who's, the first Look Who's Talking. Oh. I forget his name. I just All remember the, Bruce Willis from yeah. this movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a well-known actor. You would recognize him if you saw him. Bruce but, Willis Sr.? But in the, in, the, <laughs> in the movie, he basically plays the son... Of the lead character from the Maltese Falcon. Oh. And there's this, this is intrigue as to whether or not, like, in fact, the Falcon is real. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you go through all these, like, twists and turns, and yeah. everyone's backstabbing the others. And then at one point, there's a midget Nazi after it. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, he's just trying to sell it, and yeah. he doesn't really care. But then there's, a, there's this uh, femme fatale who's trying to. Um, Who's trying to get it because it uh, belongs to her family somehow? Anyway, you go through all these twists and turns, right? And it, yeah. then it ends up in the ocean. Plot spoiler. Plot spoiler for this uh, movie from mm-hmm. the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> and the and you kind of think it's a good ending there. Yeah. Right. With yeah. it just being like at the end, it's uh, it's in the bottom of the ocean. What yeah. are you gonna do? But there's a tacked on scene. I feel like it's tacked on. Yeah. Where they they send him down in the water to look for. Oh, here's what it is. Spoilers. So there's a midget Nazi who's the who's the antagonist of the whole thing, right? (laughs) Describe my porn collection. And he dies, (laughs) (laughs) and he dies, and his his followers wrap him in a rug, Uh and they take him, right? Yeah. But the Falcon was also wrapped in a rug, so they get back. (laughs) They take the wrong one. Yeah, they get to the office and they realize this dead this dead Nazi midget's like hate when that happens. uh, So then they. So you, so that's like a great ending right there. Like they're all standing around. And there's this little person, you know, laid out in a full Nazi regalia like uniform. Man. But then they, they decide to like shoot this additional scene where he he jumps in the water in a scuba suit to look for, it, and then he finds it. Yeah. And then it's like he's you know, and there's all the stock footage of sharks around. Yeah. I'll, you think I'll a shark's gonna attack him, yeah. and then um, a shark bites the falcon wrapped in the rug and mm-hmm. takes off with it. Oh. And that's and that's basically the end of the movie. <laughs> right, man. That's it. This is just a random thing. Awesome. So, like, you know, Matt and I did an episode a couple episodes back where we talked about a little bit about the history of horror mm. and how the best kind of horror reflects the anxieties of society yeah. right now. Yeah. And totally. um, there's a lot of metaphors going on. There's a message that's under underneath it that yeah. that fell well fell fell away a little bit in the eighties when it became yeah. more of a morality tale like yeah. have sex and you die smoke cigarettes you right, die, right? Yeah. but if you look if you look back at the more classic movies and certainly more yeah. contemporary movies now there is there is an underlying message that's trying to be conveyed through the usage of like monstrous imagery yeah um you mentioned this idea of paranoia like who's the shark who's not a shark yeah but how is that is that in any way to you relevant to what you see going on now yeah i mean the funny thing is uh so talk about being relevant like in this in the script in the shark island script um all the 
all the actresses are models, right? So it's like it's like five models on a beach, right? So it's very much about this superficial attitude. Superficial? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, so like the funny thing is all of them have Instagram accounts with like 20,000 plus in real life because right, they're all right. models and actors. But in the storyline also, and the storyline revolved around, you know, these women sort of playing alternates of themselves but it was about you know like the cattiness the snarkiness the the pumped up the fake fame the faux fame yeah. i would assume a, a level of materialism yeah level of materialism right so that that was great in my script because again the idea is you don't want to necessarily it it can't be cut and dried like this person wants this this person wants a necklace this person wants the guy this person wants whatever right it has to be Again, there has to be some intrigue, so you don't really know. And and there's there's parts of it where like I purposefully, to the credit of the writer writer as well, but but to me taking it the next level after the writer of you know having a character come off as seemingly as something one thing and then changing them downstream, right, right, downstream, <laughs> officially. <laughs> oh, the, the sea puns are gonna come heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, which was which was great, which which made it kind of relevant, you know, today. Because like, how many people do you know are so obsessed with just like their social image and their Instagram account, and, yeah. and are they real? And if you met them in real life, are they anything like what they appear to be online and all that? See, I think so it's cool. I think it's awesome that you took that direction of incorporating Instagram and and, and the uh, the kind of new modern you know uh, social media things because so many horror directors right now. Are kind of I think seeing uh, this um, this new era of communication as kind of an obstacle when they make horror films. Like, I've noticed a lot of horror films are starting to be set in the '90s, the '80s, the '70s. You know, uh, and, yeah. it, and it seems like it's it's so they don't have to deal with you know because if everybody has cell phones, so yeah. many of the old cliche dangerous situations. <laughs> right. Are, That's right. No are, service. Yeah. Here. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's so much easier to to get away to you know call an Uber or to call your friend and hey I'm lost or, or use your GPS uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> and a lot yeah, of horror exactly. movies uh, they just want to avoid that altogether these days. Yeah, it's funny because uh, in my first in Incantation, I also did. Uh, she's she's like a social media star, so the main character, so she's always like. She, her name's Lucy, so she calls her followers Lucites. She's always like, she's always like vlogging. Hey, I'm in a castle in France, and I'm not supposed to be here and stuff. And I think, I think that's, I think it's a double-edged sword because technology outgrows so fast. In five years, we may not even be using cell phones or whatever. You know, like we'll have sure. brain implant chips or whatever. <laughs> so, so like, there's that, always that danger of like when you watch an old movie or, and they pull out a big cell phone that's as big as their face, you know, a mobile phone or whatever. And, you're like, oh, this is clearly a dated movie. So that's, I think, but but that's also a charm of watching older movies too. Of like, oh man, those were simpler times back in the day, you know. Right. And well, to Matt's point, you're you're addressing technology rather than coming up with like a sort of a hand hand fisted way of getting it out of it, so you can rely on old tropes, right? Like, yeah, it yeah. feels like so many movies now. They just they, rather than try to come up with a, a more creative, more uh, relevant way to be scary in the social media age, they just come up with a way to get rid of it you know and, and you've kind of at least in incantation and, and what it sounds like even in shark island is that to some degree you, that's part of the horror a little bit you know like that's yeah. a little bit of the uh um, yeah. uh the downfall of some of these characters is their obsession with like 
social media yeah uh, sure. uh, social media fame and and the yeah. um, the idea it may, maybe their obsession with that fame that that distraction is yeah. what keeps them from yeah. seeing the imminent danger that's approaching. Speaking of uh, cliches, I remember this commercial. It's probably still around on YouTube or something, but <laughs> it was basically all every scene for every popular movie of a car trying to start. You know how they get in? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like 15 scenes, and then it was either for like Ford or like a battery, and it's like, Bring! guaranteed every time, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> like Cujo. Brilliant, yeah. <laughs> yeah you great. know what I was, I was thinking of the other day? It was a thing that used to all, uh, about cars. It was always in movies. was the uh, police the police chase where the cops like, I'm commandeering this vehicle. And then the person just gets out like, oh, yes, officer. And it's... They just, yeah, yeah they it, just flash some random badge. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was a kid thinking, oh, that must happen all the time. And, <laughs> and now I, I think, like, you know, what would I do if a cop actually came up to me and was like, I'm taking your car. I'd just be like, no, you're not. You know, that's not no. Someone should... Let's get a YouTuber to do that, you know, social yeah. experiment. Yeah, let's like, see that actually. Yeah. <laughs> there was that one, uh, <laughs> that clip in So I Married an Axe Murder. I remember that where... Uh, he runs up the car and Charles is Charles Grodin and he's in the car. And he's like, and he goes, I'm commandeering this vehicle. And he's like, you don't have the right to commandeer my vehicle. And you know that. And, and he's like, can you give me a ride? Yeah. Hop in. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Beethoven sitting in the back seat. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Cujo, it's probably the same dog. Uh, yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I was going to say, so d- were you more I mean, in your research with all the other shark movies? Were yeah. you more drawn to using uh, elements from their films, or did you kind of want to? Did you watch those things and you're like, I'm not doing any of that shit? Yeah, I mean, the 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 one element that I feel is uh, consistent throughout all good shark movies. I preface it by saying good shark movies is the water shots. So there's two classic water shots that work in almost every shark film. One is when you have the underwater housing on and you're doing the split screen, so like the actor's face is half above water, maybe some of their torso, and you keep dipping underwater, right? right? And right. maybe you see a shark fin behind him, the imminent fin approaching, um, or or you don't, which I find is even a bigger tension builder of where the fuck is this thing at? Right, right? because you know with that technique, because you've seen enough of these films, yeah, exactly. you know that that's what what follows it. Exactly, and, and every time I watched it in all these movies, even though I knew... I'd either seen the movie or I knew it was happening next. I still, I was like, oh man, this shit's, this is scary. Like, where is this thing going to come from next, right? So, and again, that's all, you, you, you either see only a little piece of the shark or you don't even see the shark. So, and that, because you're building that tension in your own mind, right? So right, that's, right. So that's what was really cool that I liked. And I incorporated a lot of that in my film. Um, and the other one that I couldn't do, unfortunately, but I did do a different version of, uh, where we shot the water was pretty shallow, which is good for safety for us. Right, right. But we, we couldn't get that awesome, you know, you want to get those under angle deep, you know, like the body floating. Oh, right, you know, right. Like just see, see the that. Keeping at the yeah, of just the water. being, you know, vulnerable in this open body. So what I did, I did a top version of that where I might shoot, um, I might shoot a wide shot of just the person in the, in the water to the sense that like they're just all alone and right, out to sea. Right. Another thing I did, although my movie's called Shark Island and, it, and this island is is mentioned in the entire script, in shots where I wanted the shark to, to feel it like 
more intense and scary, I'd try to shoot open water behind the actors or get way down level so it's basically just ocean behind them. So you get that feeling like you're in no man's land. You're you're out there right. on your own and you're fucked if something goes wrong kind of thing. What do you what do you do when you're in the is there like a survivalist trick that you're supposed to do if you're ever in that situation? Did anybody uh, know that? Uh Jude, do you, I mean I don't know. Did you do I some mean, re, you know man, research guess, when making the Shark Island film that <laughs> about what to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what I've heard what I've heard is that you're supposed to punch them right in the snout. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and potentially poke their eyes. Those are the two things. What here's what I learned, so check this out. I got I got some cool stuff in my movie uh coincidentally based on some research and some other things so one thing is i learned that there's a company called shark bands and they create this sort of wristband that has a giant fatty magnet in it right like a huge magnet and basically they strap these things to themselves and they've apparently went out and tested it with national geographic and all this and their test <laughs> the funny thing is they put two of them on a dummy and they chummed it up and tied meat and blood to it and stuff and put it submerged it in a uh, ocean full of sharks in the wild and this thing went 14 minutes without getting a sh well 14 minutes with nothing happening they don't tell you what happened at 1401 yeah right which is funny i find that funny basically they have like i, I don't know how to describe it except the closest thing i could think of is kind of like sonar like bats have yeah. right it's like right, a, right. electromagnetic receptors that pulse out from sharks Okay. And and they could so they feel vibrations. They could sense like I think thermal changes in the water. They could uh, like denote sound like motors or screaming or something right, like that. Right, right, right. So these are things that they react to either positively or negative negatively. So this shark bands. This is the other tricky part. It only works when they're in close proximity to you, right? So they have to be within like. I don't know what it is, like five or ten feet of you, right? So imagine you're in the water and a great white's coming to you or a mako or whatever, and then, you know, you got to trust this thing's going to work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but apparently it does, and, and basically this thing, when it gets close enough because it's a magnet, it scrambles their receptors and they get, it like gives them a, a jar, it jars them and they get scared and they fit so That makes sense because yeah. when you see those aerial shots of, uh, you know, just right off the coast where the sharks are just swimming in a circle, Oh yeah, like a radar dish, you know. So, uh, you know, scanning, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like, uh, I've yeah, heard yeah. that before, and and like, so apparently too, um, that that idea of that they sh they smell blood, um, it's it's actually it's that radar sonar, uh, you know, sense that they uh, yeah, have. Yeah. It's it's not necessarily the blood; it's the way that yeah. injury changes the magnetic field that your body because. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you if you have yeah. like a, I, I don't know, uh, some some like a broken arm or something, that would create some sort of magnetic pulse that's different from a healthy arm, and sharks oh, wow. would know there's an injury nearby and and it's time to go go clean up. That's yeah. so weird, but I mean, and if you think about the 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 anatomy of a shark, it doesn't. Its eyes are kind of off to the side. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's not like it would have. I would I would assume it wouldn't have great forward. Um, right. Vision. Yeah, and their eyes roll back in their head when they bite too. So yeah, it's like so they're they're relying on sort of sort of extrasensorial sort of process and yeah. uh, interesting. ESP, you know, extrasensorial. There's process. another animal that a predator that hunts with a sort of magnetic radar field kind of thing, and you, you'll yeah. never guess it's it's the uh, the duckbill platypus. Oh really? <laughs> really? That's, that's the theory. That's <laughs> the that theory. 
Is that is is that considered a predator? Absolutely. Though? Yeah, it eats small animals. It eats like little crabs and stuff. I think. Um, and I wouldn't want to be attacked. When they, like, it took a uh, a scientist a long time to figure out, or at least come up with a really good theory of what's going on. Because when they hunt, they close their eyes and they kind of. I think they even close their ears and they just kind of stick that duck bill down really close to the mud and sort of go back and forth in a sweeping motion. And, uh, when, uh, you know, looking at the anatomy of one, um, there's this heavy nerve focus in the duck bill. And, um, that's what they think is going on. They think that's some kind of super sensitive sense that we don't have. And, uh, that's how they hunt. So, so all I'm hearing is that platypuses, Evolved from sharks. And they'll duck that you it, up. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, so dude, maybe possible sequel, Platypus Island? Yeah. Could be a yeah. <laughs> I'd go see that. <laughs> if that's not the next book, I'm going to be real mad. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot to work with. There's a, they, they, have a, they have a poison in their back feet that what? is... Um, if, if you get, I guess, scratched by one... Um, this stuff goes straight to your pain receptors, so it's uh, completely no. unaffected by morphine. There's nothing. Yeah, wow. if a platypus gives you that back foot scratch, there's <laughs> whatever whatever they call that attack. Uh, Wasn't that, uh, that the third single off your second album? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, when, when MC Platypus lays down the black foot, back foot scratch, uh, that's it. You, uh, you take all the morphine you want. Take a little more, you're Damn. still going to be in a ton of pain. That's what they say. It's Man, insane. who wants to be the person who gets totally fucked up by a platypus? <laughs> like, yeah. you, gotta, you go, you get sent to the ER. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, <laughs> what what's your emergency? It's like, just platypus yeah. fucking the, the rest of your life, you have this severe PTSD from the experience. And <laughs> you don't want to tell anybody about you, it. You, you can, you every time you watch it. DuckTales, <laughs> yeah. Start to go to a traumatic like, episode. Tell the kid, turn this off, kids. I don't, I don't want this yeah. in my house. <laughs> you can't, you can't look at fucking beavers. You can't look at ducks. Yeah, that cute dinosaur from oh, before oh. time. You can't even it's see that movie without freaking out. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of monsters and dinosaurs, uh, so I got, I got so another, another interesting. Tale to tell. Tale to tell. Shark tale. <laughs> uh, Keep them coming. We, These are great. We, uh, <laughs> we got a... Uh, so my my business partner, Dan, we own this company called Blue Falcon Productions. And uh, he went... His mom lives in Florida and has lived there a couple uh, years now. And long story short, she knew this guy who had had this collection of, of megalodon teeth. These giant shark teeth, right? So... I didn't know much about Megalodon other than that they're giant sharks. And that Jason Stratham is the only person that can defeat them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> they should add that into the next Crank movie where he's fighting the Megalodon, you know, to keep his adrenaline up. Yeah, right. <laughs> He, he he rides in on it. He's gonna, he should actually. Him and Amy Smart are having sex on the back. He of it. should. That's some good stuff. I think he should just be the villain. He should just be the villain for Aquaman too. It's just Jason Statham riding a megalodon. Yeah, that's perfect. But uh, anyways, so this guy, this guy had this collection, like an entire like six shelves of shark teeth, right. megalodon teeth, and apparently. 
news to me, they're they're valued anywhere between two and twelve thousand dollars, depending on the age and all that kind oh, of thing. Yeah. Right. I'm pretty sure they're made. To, they're using the making of dick posts. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're definitely hard to find. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So that's cool. So we had this sharp uh, tooth that was as big as my hand. Wow. Massive, right? And it weighed like, I would say it weighed almost two pounds probably. Like huge. Right, right, Solid, right? Because right? it's petrified or whatever at this point. Whatever you call it when a bone gets turns to stone. A bone is <laughs> It's all coming back. <laughs> so, uh, but it was really cool. So he gave us one. He didn't give it. He lent us one that was worth six thousand dollars so it was like the Fuck. most expensive thing on my set right, right. <laughs> like the whole bunch of the movie is this shark dude but it was really cool and um we integrated we in- integrated into an awesome scene which um so you know you got to throw in all these like jaws references when you're making a shark right, of movie. Course. so i threw in some jaws references but then i was like you know what we what we don't have is you know, we don't have the, the character, the fucking fisherman guy, right? Right. You're going to need a bigger boat guy? You're going to need a bigger boat guy. We don't have that guy in the story. Like, we had the intrigue, we had the models, we had the sharks, but we didn't have that, like, the tale, the, the, the folklore dude, right? Right, right, right. So, it was great. So, I ended up writing a little piece, and then the writer got a hold of it, and then together we polished it a little bit. So, it was basically, I got to play this role, because nice. for those of you that don't know me, I look like Gandalf, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I got this long beard and this scraggly hair. You get Gandalf the shark on <laughs> Yeah. So, it was cool. So, I played this character that comes in when they all reach, there's like two, there's like the main island and the shark island, right? So, right. when they get to the main island off the ferry... They're all having, it's like their first night, and they're all having drinks and stuff. Right, of course. And then my character comes in to, like, sort of warn them, and I slap this giant $6,000 Megalodon tooth down, and I basically give the tale of Megalodons, how they evolved into killers, and, and how they all turn on themselves. So it's like, you know, the premonition that all these characters right. are going to turn on nice. themselves, okay. and are backstabbing, and, like, this is the ancestral home of where sharks came from, and that kind of thing. But in, in like, a really cool, sort of scary and awesome scene you know a great scene you know if i do say so myself even though I could have, <laughs> a great but, scene that i wrote directly started <laughs> right, exactly it's the best part of the whole movie. exactly but really really awesome fun scene and the and uh the actors really played off as well so that was that was really cool to because that that prop literally came out of nowhere it was never in the script right it, it just, just kind of showed up and i was like we have to use it's it. one of the, it's one of those the magic of indie films or any kind of film really where it's just yeah. You come across something, yeah, and you and you write it in, and sometimes it ends up being like the coolest part yeah, of it. Totally, yeah. Yeah, that that's, so that, that thing you saying about them turning on themselves. Have you ever seen that uh, clip of um, they put they somehow they managed to get a, a camera into the womb of a, a pregnant shark, and um, what? it's it's footage of a uh, I guess a baby shark eating its brother. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. or sister or <laughs> yeah they, they right wait so there's two in the womb and one yeah, eats yeah there's the like other a few there's like a few of, of them in there and one of them just eats oh. another one oh, that's <laughs> yeah. crazy like they're literally predators from before yeah. birth god that's crazy and, and there's a lot of people that will say like a shark is i mean it's essentially a dinosaur yeah you know they, they ancestrally yeah. they've been around since the dinosaurs roamed the earth and they survived whatever wiped out the dinosaurs, yeah, uh, they fell off the edge of the flat earth. 
<laughs> the Ar- Arctic shelf. Right. See, but yeah. the dinosaurs, were, they, were, they were in the curve of the Earth, so they were fine. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, a lot of, so for a lot of people, they consider them the, the ultimate predator. Yeah. Because of their quickness and their ability to be stealthful and um, yeah. obviously their viciousness when yeah. provoked. Yeah, it's, man, it's, I mean, you watch a shark, any footage of a shark, and it's just like, they are so streamlined and powerful and they can go so fast and it looks so effortless. Like, you, you can't even see a, a muscle twitch barely and a shark is just like, boom. Right. It's pretty I think, I think that's the worst thing about them, too, is that they look so bored when they're just murdering. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so yeah. true. <laughs> like, at least tigers are kind of <laughs> wagging their tail and growling and, you know, they're enjoying Leaping. themselves where yeah. sharks, sharks are doing the thing they do. It's like, well, well, Matt, because when the shark bit you, that might have been the greatest moment of your life. Uh, but for the shark, it was just another chance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a reference to last week's episode about... Uh, nice. I think there's a Raul Julia, if you ever played a shark, that would be a great line. We well, were just talking about We were just talking about yeah. yeah. You know, it, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've actually mentioned it on the show yet. Uh, but this is a legit, everyone makes fun of me, but it's a le- I legit have a shark phobia. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's weird because I grew up surfing, you know, like Matt and I grew up on the, on the, you know, the Gulf mm-hmm. Coast, so there's yeah. sharks all the time. And it didn't really start to develop until I got a little bit older because when I was younger and surfing, it just never, yeah. never, it never occurred to me really. Yeah. Um, I don't think I developed it until I moved to California and. I realized that great whites can fly. <laughs> they literally, they can, they can literally jump out of the water <laughs> several feet, and then yeah. you know, they breach the water so before they land and come down. And um, I, I, I remember I first saw a video of it, and it was off the coast of like South Africa, and I was like, well, all right, South Africa is pretty crazy waters, you know. It's like yeah. okay, by that. But they, but then there was a surfer who had a, a GoPro on his board, and in the background, about I don't know, twenty yards. Yeah. A great white breaches the water a good – he must – that shark fully out of the water probably got about six, eight feet high Jeez. before it decides to go down. God. Man. <laughs> Man. So, so uh, you, you mentioned out in California editing film. Um, yeah. When do you think your shark editing film is going to be finished? Well, finished. <laughs> well, I would love to have a trailer, uh, you know, in a month I'd say is a fair – Okay. A fair uh, thing to say. And then as quickly as possible. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working with you on a bunch of other stuff, so uh, it's time dependent. But luckily in L.A., there's lots of resources and lots of people and lots of uh, good friends that are going to uh, hopefully help me out. So, I, you know, I would say, what what is this, March? April? We're, we're at the end of March, yeah. Yeah, so maybe I would love to have, like, you know, like June, July, have some, some at least a rough cut out. But that'd be great because that's right in the peak of uh, summer season. Yeah. So if you could drop a, a, a new shark movie. Yeah. Um, obviously, I think I think the Meg did well, right? I mean, financially at least, I think people want to check it out. I enjoyed I mean, it. It's definitely it was out dumb there. fun. Uh, yeah, um, and and then Shark Week is big too. Oh, man. that's what you should do, so man! If you could drop it during Shark Week, them and be like, that'd be rad. Yeah, yeah. So. Very cool, very cool. I mean, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, your first film got distributed and, and got shown all over the world. Yeah. I, so, yeah, that's one more thing is, like, I got 
you know, I, w I was lucky enough to work with Dean Cain in the first film, right. former Superman. This one I worked with uh, Michael Pere, who was Eddie and the Cruisers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's not bad. For for my first two films, I got, you know, somewhat known guys in small independent films. So I, hopefully that'll help, too. Right. Before we go, I'd, I'd um, just like to throw out a couple of, because uh, we're kind of talking about possible shark movie, you know, like scientists. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Sharks in space attacking astronauts. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially aliens, isn't it? No, I, 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 I mean, like, they swim in outer space. Not like, they're not on oh, okay, a spaceship. Right. Space it's sharks. like, they're like in orbit yeah. somehow. Yeah. They're, they're space that sharks. Yeah. Well, um, that's the obvious follow up to Sharknado. You know, like yeah. in space, there's that whole blackness thing you can't see. And so oh, imagine the yeah, sharks yeah. just coming out of the shadow while they're repairing the yeah. satellite. I would love that. Um, yeah, one, they swim in dark. Dark matter. They swim. In uh, zombie sharks. Oh, like un undead zombie, zombie sharks. sharks. That needs to happen. I don't know what, yes. what how that makes them more dangerous, but sure, let's do that. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, how do you, how do you kill them? You got to cut off the doors. <laughs> <and kill them. laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just, that actually that's actually how they make dick pills. Uh, let's see. <laughs> make them from the okay, final one. Um, microscopic sharks like they tried they Ooh. the scientists got this idea that they could boost your immune system by putting sharks in there to attack yes to attack the, the diseases you know and something went wrong so now sort of like an inner space style so they have to go yeah. inside of the body and fight the sharks in the bloodstream that's I'm um, I'm just putting uh, those out there for whoever wants to use then, them uh, no royalties just go I, ahead I, please I that. I love subatomic sharks. <laughs> yeah. I hope that's your follow-up. Yeah. But um, I think burrowing sharks, Ooh, burrowing nice. sharks. so that they like, can, they can they can get you from like, like tremors. That is, yeah, like that tremors. Is tremors. Yeah, but that's tremors. Yeah, but, what but about, those are snakes. Yeah, those are snake worms. Yeah. What about uh, what about midget Nazi sharks? <laughs> oh, that's that's too scary. Too, yeah. That's uh, that would be have a hard time. Actually, with, uh, though, MPAA getting yeah. uh, R rating. You could do so you could do like a throwback Nazis program sharks to kill. I you know like you like think a would, back to the suckers. These thing, are great yeah. ideas, guys. <laughs> why are we so, shooting? So <laughs> why are we shooting? So for everyone listening out there, we've given you like five or six great shark ideas. The shark genre has been dormant for a little yes. bit too long. Yeah. The Meg was a nice attempt. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Jason Stratham. We, yeah. You did your best. Yeah. But I think um uh I think that that Shark Island is going to be our generations. Well, not our generations because we're old, but like the next generations. <laughs> yeah. Film that keeps you out of away from the beach. That's right. And, we gotta um, keep people off the fucking beach. Yeah. That's the whole point. Scare, That's right. Stay okay. out of the water, people. Scare people until they stop doing the fun stuff they like. <laughs> Every That's right. Like <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Because if you're not at the beach, you're at home yes, watching movies, and that's what we're all <laughs> in this for. True, true. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> all right well jude thanks so much for coming on the show again yeah, uh we love hearing about the projects that you do thanks. you are the epitome of an in the independent filmmaker and the independent artist thank you and so we wish shark island all the best and we hope that people keep an eye out for the trailer coming out probably during shark week yeah that'd be great guys and i'll keep you updated and i think we're on facebook somewhere too shark island awesome yeah check it out uh what's your, like what are your handles shark island movie uh, i think it's shark island movie we're on facebook and instagram 
follow it. Check them out. So I'm also out there. So you could, if you find me, you'll find the Shark Island stuff. Right. Jude S. Walco on Twitter and Instagram. So check. That's out. right. And go back and check out his first film, Incantation, yeah. available everywhere now. You guys can see Incantation everywhere. Just look, Google it, and you'll see it everywhere. Awesome. So uh, for Dave and Matt, we're and, gonna, Jude. and Jude, we're going to say thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Stay out of the water. Stay out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Shark Week Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and wherever all fine podcasts can be found.